Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. In today's seminar, we're going to be discussing the last two chapters written from the Fiat Standard sent out to subscribers. And you can subscribe to the Fiat Standard and Principles of Economics, my two books, to receive one chapter every week from either of the two books and also discuss them on the forums and join safeadeen.com and join these seminars. And so today I'm going to give a brief overview of the content of chapters three and four, and then I hope to take your questions and to discuss 
your opinions of it, hopefully giving me some useful feedback on the uh, material so far. So chapter three in the fiat standard is called The Underlying Technology Behind Fiat. In chapter one, I introduced the book and I introduced the idea behind the book, which is that I'm trying to use the same lens with which I analyzed Bitcoin in the Bitcoin standard, the same way in which I looked at Bitcoin, studied it, understood how it worked, and then tried to explain it in a way that is uh, easy to communicate and understand for the uh, average uh, reader. I tried to do the same thing with the fiat standard. And it's a little bit more complicated with fiat because, you know, Bitcoin, there's software there uh, that you can uh, read and anyone can read. But the fiat standard is far more haphazard. But nonetheless, we can still learn quite a lot about it. So I looked at history of fiat and its development briefly in chapter two. But then in chapter three is when I uh, begin to discuss the structure of fiat. And if we were to think about it by analogy to the Bitcoin network, ultimately what the what distinguishes the fiat standard is that it has one full node as opposed to bitcoin whereas in bitcoin we have many many nodes in the fiat standard it's a very centralized system there's really only one full node if you look at the functions of a full node in the bitcoin network only the us federal reserve has the privileges of a Bitcoin node in the fiat system because the Federal Reserve is the only entity that is able to essentially decide the validity of all transactions. The only It's the only entity that can validate transactions and the only entity that can reject them. It's the only entity that can validate balances, can reject balances, it can revoke balances, and it can provide access to the network and decline access to the network. This is the only full node, but I think you can also think of another couple of hundred nodes that exist in the system. And these are the other central banks that are spread out all over the world. There's about 190 of them that are members of the IMF, 190 central banks around the world. And each one of these, if you think about it functionally, functions as a mining node because they can also issue their own tokens and they effectively produce a side chain of the US dollar. The US dollar is the base layer token of the fiat standard. And then all these regional central banks from all over the world, they issue their own tokens that are backed by the dollar. So effectively, they're like a second layer dollar that they use domestically in their own uh, countries. And these are not liquid outside the country. So we're partitioning money into things that are not liquid outside of their uh, local country. And each country has its own money. And then if you want to transfer from one country to the other, you have to rely on a handful of global reserve currencies that can be exchanged uh, internationally. And so you have to go from, you know, nodes, you have to use your local node and your local node connects with the uh, recipient's uh, foreign node. And that's how you're able to transfer money across international borders. So it's quite primitive when you compare it to Bitcoin in in this kind of uh, layered sort of way in which they do it. And of course, it's all politically run so that there's no free market in money. There's no free market in tokens. It's not like anybody can issue their own tokens and use it on the network. You are locked in to the monopoly token of the network and uh, of these nodes. The most important point, I would say, in uh, chapter three, and chapter three is is, is really quite um, foundational in the analysis of the entire book. The most important point, I would say, is that if you wanted to look at the functions of what a node or a central bank does in the fiat standard, what I like to call the underlying technology behind fiat, 
is that central banks have these four functions, which I list in the chapter. Each central bank performs these very important four functions and in which they practically have a monopoly. The first one is that it's a monopoly on providing domestic fiat and determining its supply and price. So only the central bank can issue the coin and it decides how much there is and it decides what the price of it is. Some will say that private banks can issue money as well and that's true, but only private banks that are backed by the central bank to the extent that they're backed by the central bank and they have permission of the central bank to issue credit. And so effectively it is only the central bank. Secondly, it has a monopoly on clearing international payments. In any country in the world, if you want to send money, before Bitcoin was invented, if you wanted to send money internationally, the only businesses that did that legally had to operate through central banks, had to operate through central bank networks. So they had to go on the fiat standard. You couldn't just set up a, a money clearing business. You can't just set up a bank. So one, one way of thinking about this is, you look at places like uh, Lebanon or uh, Turkey or um, uh, Venezuela, where the currency is facing a lot of trouble, and you wonder, you know, why wouldn't it be practical for somebody to, for a foreign bank, to go and set up a U.S. dollar-based bank there, completely independent of uh, the central bank? So the central bank in Lebanon issues the lira, but a bank can go and set up uh, a bank account and say, you know, we're independent of the uh, Lebanese lira. We're going to issue our, we're going to just use dollars. You know, we're, say, we're, we're a, a French or American or um, Jordanian bank or Egyptian bank or whatever. We have a lot of business in Lebanon in order to make our business, our clients have business in Lebanon. So we're setting up a, a bank there and we're going to take deposits from people in dollars. Just, you know, run a bank, not regulated by the central bank and not using the currency of the central bank. You know, it wouldn't even touch the local currency. Can you do that? No, you cannot. You cannot do that because there's a government monopoly that uh, monopolizes this, uh, that monopolizes international uh, clearance and correspondence banking. And that has to go through the central bank. The third function is that it is a monopoly authority for licensing and regulating domestic banks, holding their reserves and clearing payments between them. So not only can you not do international clearance, you can't also do domestic banking, regular banking, unless you have a license from the central bank. Your reserves have to be in the central bank. So you can't just set up your own bank and work with it. You have to have your reserves at the central bank. And then finally, the fourth core function of a fiat node is that it is used to lend to the national government by buying government bonds. So effectively, the central bank has those three monopolies and also it is the biggest market maker in government bonds. It is essentially the biggest buyer of government bonds. So if you combine all of these four functions, you see that the cash balance that is held by central banks is an enormously, enormously important cash balance because it performs four functions. The money that is held by the central bank is the money that is backing the local currency with hard currencies. So everywhere you are in the world, your central bank will be holding dollars and euros and probably even gold as well. These hard currencies that central banks use among each other. So they have their holdings of foreign currency. That same money is backing the currency, the national currency, the local fiat coin. And it is also used to settle international trades and also it banks all bank deposits and also it buys government bonds. 
to finance government spending. I really think, you know, laying them out like this is something that you never really hear. When you think about it this way, when you start using the clarity that Bitcoin affords you of just thinking in terms of what are the functions and what are the uh, essence of what this thing does, what this technology does, you see that this central bank performs those four functions and this pot of money that it has, the pot of money that the central bank has, is used to do these four things at the same time, which really, if you think about it, is completely insane. Why would you want to mix all of these functions? I think the best metaphor for trying to understand, for, for thinking about just how much of a horrible idea it is to mix all of those things together, in my mind, this is exactly, or not exactly, but I mean, this is uh, similar to um, an engineer mixing the sewage and the water supply for a house into the same piping in order to save on pipes. Why buy separate pipes for sewage and separate pipes for water? We can just save money by combining the two. And then, you know, of course, that's going to create an enormous amount of problems. The way that the fiat system has functioned in the last century has been, in my mind, like one big giant bad nightmare where people are trying to figure out how do we make a single piping system for sewage and water work and what technologies can we use and how can we filter the water and you know let's add a filter on each sink so that we're always filtering the sewage and trying out all kinds of extremely impractical and extremely unworkable and extremely um, dangerous solutions that end up backfiring all the time rather than trying the obvious solution of let's just separate the sewage from <laughs> the water. And a central bank is exactly like that. It's, it's, the monetary, it's, it's, it's the monetary equivalent of a very, very stupid design for plumbing. So you have a national currency, which is backed by foreign currency, and that same currency is used to settle everybody's trades abroad. And it's also backing all of the bank deposit, and it also buys government bonds. So it's lending to government using, effectively, the wealth of the entire population. And why is the wealth of the entire population um, used as collateral for this loan by the government? Because the population has no alternative but this banking software, effectively, or malware, if you want to call it, because the population has no alternative. If you want to use banks, and you do, because this world is, um, you know, you have to use um, money to trade with people, and, the, and, and, and in the modern world, you trade with people other than just the people that uh, live nearest to you. So you need the bank, you need to trade with others, you need to save, you want to hold your money in a bank, and you have to use the national currency, and you have to settle trades internationally. You have to trade with people abroad. Um, all businesses almost have to do these kinds of things. So you need to use the bank. And then the fact that the money exists in the banking system and the fact that money is in the national currency and the fact that money is held by institutions that are held by the central bank means that that money itself can be used to finance government spending. And of course, here, you know, the, the Keynesian idea of the free lunch is exactly like saying, well... If we just mix the sewage and the water, then we can save on piping. You know, I've managed to save you 50% of the cost of piping, roughly, by doing this. So what other ideas do you have that can save us money on piping? 
And the answer, of course, is, you know, you shouldn't want to save money in piping because if you do, you're going to pay the price and a much, much higher cost when this very bad piping solution that you have um, backfires. And so in the case of the Keynesian central bank piping, once you've believed the Keynesian idiotic idea that government lending has no counterparty risk, that the government lending doesn't have risk, that government lending is risk-free. If you believe that that is the case, there's no harm from having the central bank lend to the government, essentially using the money of the entire population as the collateral for the loan. In the Keynesian mind, the government can always tax and so it can always pay off the loan. And so the central bank can keep printing money in order to lend to the government to buy their bonds because the government will always be able to tax. And Of course, this is not the case. What has ended up happening all over the world is the currency is constantly devaluing and central banks are going through periodic periods of default every, um, well, depends on how Keynesian your central bank is. So, you know, the, the, the most, the bravest Keynesian central bankers have managed to, you know, places like Argentina, where they have a default every five years or so. It's almost like the World Cup, you know, every four years they need a new default and a new uh, national team to go to the World Cup in Argentina. And places that are a little bit less Keynesian can last a decade, sometimes two decades, sometimes three decades. Uh, The U.S., has done some of the best job in this regard. So far, they've done something like a default in the 1930s and a default in the 1970s, but that's been uh, pretty much it so far. But the devaluation is universal. Everybody's constantly devaluing their currency. All over the world, you see uh, currencies are being devalued. And so mixing those four functions together is always going to backfire because, and and I discussed, first of all, the backing of the national currency. We see internationally, if you see in the chart here, half of all of international reserve, 51.6, and this is at the end of September 2020, 51.6 of all international reserves are in dollars, 70% in euros, 15.8 in gold, and then a bunch of other currencies that are around four and three and two. And this is the international composition of foreign exchange reserves. And essentially, it's it's really primarily the, the dollar. So half the world's reserves are in dollar, and about a sixth are in gold, and a sixth is in uh, euros. But then, and the rest is insignificant, uh, small quantities of, you know, other currencies. But primarily, it's the dollar. And the dollar is used in the majority of international trade. So the dollar is the base layer token. And the tricky thing that using the dollar as a base layer token does for central banks is that the dollar is good for spatial liquidity, uh, spatial saleability. You know, you can use the dollar for trading across the world. If you're connected to the fiat network, you can settle trades, you know, from... Turkey to Brazil to China using the SWIFT network quite quickly. So it's useful for saleability across space. You're able to send money at a very low cost across space, but it's not very good for saleability across time. If you'd like to maintain the government reserves, the central bank reserves, if you want them to maintain value over time so that you're not devaluing the currency uh, decades in, well, the dollar is not very great for that. So then you might want to need to have something like gold. And so you can't just have a system where we only have one currency uh, because national currencies are good today for clearance through government uh, network, but they're not good for the future. Gold is good for the future. So the result is 
uh, central banks end up having to get gold and fiat. And then within fiat currencies, they need to diversify their resources, perhaps, you know, dollar, but also other currencies. So this is all disruptive to the function of money. And then it's the fact that it is used for international trade. The, the, the complication that this creates is that now you need to lend, you need to use your money effectively as collateral. Your money has to be used as collateral to lend to the government if you want to trade with people outside your country. If you want to trade with people in, the, in, in, in other countries, you have to have your money in a bank and it has to be set, used to settle international trade. And one of the major problems of the fiat standard in the 20th century was the fact that every time they would engage in inflationism, that would show up in the balance of trade. What happens when you start inflating and the money supply starts rising is that the value of the currency declines and then the government and the central banks start running out of foreign reserves and then they can't buy the things that you want, even though you have the money for them, even though you might have the dollars in your bank account for your business. And this is what's happened in Lebanon. Your business can no longer function, even though your business is solvent, because your business's money is in the bank account and the bank account is being um, essentially uh, debauched because it is used to finance the government spending. And so when you hold international trade as ransom, I mean, effectively, governments use banks' reserves in order to uh, borrow against them, and they borrow the money that is backed by that value. So, of course, Keynesians think of it as a free lunch, but it's not a free lunch. It's not a free lunch because when the government is running out of foreign reserves, then nobody can trade anymore. And it's not a free lunch because purely the fact that it looks like a free lunch incentivizes the government to continue to abuse it over and over and over again until it actually breaks. And then the third aspect is when you think about bank reserves, you know, suddenly all of the system of banking becomes also ransom to government spending because if government destroys the currency, then you can't have savings. Your savings are destroyed. Your savings lose value and people can't save. So think about when we discuss what is it that makes economic growth happen, we always mention trade and capital accumulation. Those are the two main drivers, as well as technological progress, which is highly mixed, intermixed with trade because usually you get a lot of technological progress from uh, abroad. So think about what this fiat technology does to those two very important things, saving and trading. Both of them are massively compromised because you can't trade anymore when your currency is broken and your government is running out and then your government has wasted all of your foreign reserve. And you can't save when your government is constantly destroying the value of your currency. And then all of that, of course, is uh, to finance the buying of government bonds, which is the point of the whole Ponzi, is that you're constantly allowing governments to spend without this um, being good, without them having to pay the costs for it. You add all of these things together and you see that basically what the fiat standard does is that it destroys the ability of people to save for the future and it destroys people's ability to trade with the rest of the world in order to operate a payments network. You know, you compromise saving and trading in order to be able to run the software. It's like I tell you, I'm going to have to install the software in, on your computer. You know, if you think running a Bitcoin node is complicated, imagine running a fiat node means we are going to have to install this software that's going to destroy your ability to save and 
occasionally just also destroy your ability to trade with the rest of the world. You know, would you would you click agree to terms and conditions if this was the term and condition that were offered to you when you installed the fiat standard? I'm guessing most people would say no. We can really understand much of the economic catastrophes of the 20th century when we think of it in that way. When we think of this as being the root dysfunction of the fiat standard, we see why so many problems happen around the world with um, inflation and bankruptcies and government spending and all that. So that's kind of a summary of chapter three. I'm wondering how many people, like what percentage of people involved in the system who are directly involved in the system really understand that it works this way? Honestly, the more that I look at it, the more that I think about it, I don't think that uh, there was at any point somebody who designed it to work this way. It just emerged out of political convenience uh, in a sense of, you know, why did things uh, turn out the way they did? Why did people do this? Because they could. That's really what it comes down to. So like you see it, you see the same pattern repeat in so many different countries, in so many contexts, and not just in the 20th century, you know, the the patterns of the fiat standard, the the driving patterns were also uh, there under the uh, primitive uh, monetary systems. Even, even, Even under physical gold, you could still have inflation when the kings would collect the coins and, um, put base metals in uh, with the gold and devalue it. You had similar kinds of things emerge at all times. So I, I, I think it's much more of a spontaneous emergent order out of corrupt human nature, finding an avenue for expression in this highly conducive technology, basically. Under the gold standard, it was harder to be able, it was harder to inflate. If you were a king, you had to be more careful and, you know, when you did a mistake like this, it likely was fatal. But within the 20th century, you know, what changed is that you could make those mistakes and still get away with them, or at least get away with them for much longer. So after 1914, after all these banks had started inflating the money supply to finance World War I, the dynamic, I think, changed because a lot of governments managed to do some inflation and still not witness a collapse of the currency. There was a rise in prices and there was, um, you know, for England, I think, is the best example because, you know, it's, it's, it was the world's main currency and this was the topic in, in, in chapter one. They were running out of uh, gold and they were in a war and there was a liquidity crisis. And so, you know, like if you were going through something like that, anybody who's going through something like this, are you just going to go out and declare default immediately? No, of course you're going to try and, you know, make things work and look under the couch and see if you have some change or whatever you, you'll try and make things work. And this is effectively what they did in uh, England, you know, let's print a little bit and confiscate some gold and uh, tell people to use uh, paper and, Let's see if it sticks. And it stuck. And, you know, it was 50 years of kicking the can down the road with this. At each point, they they could take a little bit more and it would still work. And it just made it um, continue to proceed. So I I think very few people kind of think about it um, in this kind of overview perspective of, you know, why is this there in the first place? Why can't we think of a world in which this isn't taken for granted, in which we have a a, a different monetary system that doesn't require all of this, you know? (laughs) 
we can have money without having to lend to the government. I think that's the lesson that Bitcoin uh, teaches us. And so it forces us to question the notion that we need to have all of a society's wealth stored up in a place where the government can borrow against it. And then if the government messes up, it destroys the value of all of that wealth. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeedeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. It just seems like a lot of economists don't even understand everything that you just said, and I don't understand why they don't understand it, but maybe we need to move on to Chapter 4. I guess. Topic of Chapter 4 is fiat mining. And in it, I discuss fiat mining in terms similar to what we think of in Bitcoin mining. So how is it that the fiat supply comes into existence? In the case of Bitcoin, work is done by miners who need to, if you want to call it, dig into the cloud in order to find Bitcoins. And so they spend a lot of money in order to try and win the race to find the coins in the cloud. And the way that the uh, difficulty adjustment works in Bitcoin is that the cost of mining a Bitcoin is always going to oscillate around the market price of Bitcoin. Obviously, it's not exact, but it's going to be similar uh, in the same order of magnitude because as the uh, price rises, more and more people will compete for the coin rewards and that competition drives up the difficulty of mining and so makes it more difficult. So mining Bitcoin is hard. There's a limit on it, and there's a very strict supply of how much of it we're going to be having. We know exactly how many there is. But in the case of uh, fiat, the way that mining in fiat works is through lending. What fiat does is make it so that anytime a new loan is created, anytime a new loan is issued, new money is created. And I think this is a very, very powerful concept. Once you understand it, I think it helps us understand how fiat works much, much, much better. Because the way it functions is that any agency, any financial institution that is uh, regulated by a central bank and that has 
uh, a license to lend from its central bank, any one of these financial institutions can effectively mine new coins into existence every time they issue a loan. So if you go to a bank and you borrow to uh, own a house, that bank is not taking money from depositors and giving it to you. They don't have a million dollars that somebody else deposited to give you to buy your $1 million house. They will effectively make those million dollars just credit them, you know, digitally create them and put them on the ledger. And um, now they're in your checking account. And so now you have the million dollars and then you go and you send them to the uh, owner of the house and you buy the house from them. And so it's, it's really analogous to mining because it brings new tokens into existence. And that's how mining happens. And so it's actually quite amazing when you start thinking about it this way, because it really helps us understand how fiat works much better. The most important way, perhaps, is just thinking about it in terms of the difficulty of mining. With um, with something like Bitcoin, we know that uh, the output of mining is fixed. With something like gold, we know that you know physics and chemistry of gold and um, the history of thousands of years of people looking for it mean that any uh, whatever happens this year we're not going to be able to make a lot of gold compared to all the gold that exists. So there's some kind of mechanism for scarcity. Uh, There's a way of limiting the inflation with most forms of money. And each one has its own, you know, and there's also a force, a market force that is strongly incentivizing the creation of more money. In the case of gold, it's gold miners. In the case of Bitcoin, it's Bitcoin miners. But uh, they're restrained, as we mentioned. In the case of seashells, uh, it's uh, people looking for seashells. In the case of the rye stones mentioned by um, uh, the Bitcoin standard, um, you know, this new guy, Captain O'Keefe, who came to the island, went and got modern boats and dynamite and used it in order to get uh, limestones and flood the market with it. So people are always trying to find ways of making more money. And monetary technologies succeed to the extent that they can limit this inflation. That's what Bitcoin has going for it. That's what gold has going for it. Um, In the case of fiat, there's no really rational way of determining um, how much supply grows. And the real actual restraint on the supply of growth in fiat is simply the fact that the credit market itself is self-correcting in a way through the business cycle. In other words, the business cycle is what gives fiat its hardness because every few years, when there is a financial um, crisis, when there's a business cycle um, downturn, that leads to the opposite of what happens when we lend. Because when you lend, you're making new money to all those businesses. Now, when that credit expansion happens, and I discussed this in detail in the Bitcoin standard, when that credit expansion happens, um, you, you know, you get a boom and you start uh, you start getting people investing in all kinds of projects that they think will be successful because they can get low interest credit from their bank. But as they keep spending the money and they start developing more in the project, more people are spending more money. And so the price of the capital goods increases. And so the, um, and so the uh, business eventually uh, fail. And at that point, all of these loans get written off because all of these companies start getting going bankrupt. So as the loans are being written off, the money supply is contracting. And that's basically what 
prevents fiat from degenerating into hyperinflation every uh, five years or so. In other words, I mean, of course, it has gone into hyperinflation, but this dynamic of inflation, deflation, and reflation is the predominant dynamic that we see over the last 100 years. If you look at uh, in history, uh, in the history of the last 100 years, Professor Steve Hanke says there's been something like 60 uh, hyperinflations in the past 100 years or so, which is remarkably little if you think about it. I mean, it's, it's much higher than uh, has ever happened uh, before. It's still a lot, but still that's, you know, each one of these episodes, let's say, is one, two, three years of hyperinflation, let's say. Um, that's, you know, 60 instances times, let's say, two years each. That's 120 years of hyperinflation in a system where we have something like 200 countries or let's say 100 because we had fewer countries back then. But even if we say 100 countries over 100 years, that's 10,000 years. And we only had um, something like 200 of these were spent in hyperinflation. Even though, you know, not to minimize the catastrophe of hyperinflation, but still, I think it bears explaining um, that we didn't get hyperinflation happen all the time. And I think the reason for that is that credit money is not just a printer. It's, it's not paper money. It's not like there are, you know, $1 trillion floating around. And then when the central bank goes and prints another trillion dollars, then there's two trillions now, and then prices are roughly going to double. Credit money doesn't work that way. Fiat money doesn't work that way. Money is generated when loans are issued. And that is a mechanism that is restrained by the fact that you can't just keep issuing loans forever. And that when you start issuing too many loans, that's when um, bankruptcies happen. And so these loans start getting written off. So this is kind of why we can understand why um, we don't see that much um, hyperinflation. What we see is the cycle of inflation, deflation, and reflation, where the uh, money supply first begins to expand because, you know, for Keynesian reasons of stimulating demand and reducing unemployment and, um, you know, uh, uh, greasing up the economy. And then that causes the boom, the inflationary boom part of the cycle. And then that begins to drop, uh, that turns into a bust. The money supply begins to contract. And now we have the deflationary bust of the cycle. And at that point, that's when the economists step in and say, you need to reflate. You need to re-inflate the bubble effectively. You need to um, fix the financial balance, the, the balance sheets of financial institutions because uh, a lot of healthy businesses and a lot of solvent businesses will get wiped out and a lot of solvent banks will get wiped out because of the lack of liquidity that is caused by the liquidity crunch from the business collapse. And the logic can seem quite compelling, to be honest, because it's very true that a lot of businesses would lose money just because their bank is uh, insolvent. And now they, would, they might become insolvent themselves because a lot of their own cash holdings are going to be um, you know, they're not going to get all of their money back. They're, the bank is insolvent. They're going to get in line with the creditors and they may get 50%, 60%, 40%. And that might be the difference between solvency and insolvency for them. So this solvent business could continue if you simply had uh, enough liquidity to keep it going. At that point, it becomes quite attractive as an option to just let the central bank bail these people out. And then if the central bank bails them out, they'll be all right. And then all the businesses will be fine. 
And it kind of is logical as a way to get out of the problem now. But of course, the problem with this is that this reflation becomes the inflation of the next bubble and then causes another crisis, which then requires more reflation. So the money supply continues to grow even as the reflation, uh, as the deflations will uh, crash it. Um, and if we look at the uh, growth rate over time, we see the money supply of this has grown at around, uh, depends on who you ask, but I did, I, I did run the numbers in the Bitcoin standard and I bring them up again here. Um, you see in the period between 1960 and 2015, the average for 167 countries was 32% per year growth in money supply, which is huge. But of course, that includes a few, um, a few cases of extremely high money supply growth, which really um, skew the sample. If you look at, uh, if you try and look at the lower end, at the best examples, you see that the lowest growth rate was uh, achieved by Switzerland which was 6.5% per year. So Switzerland had the slowest growth in money supply at 6.5%. The US actually was second at 7.4% per year, average annual supply growth, broad money supply growth. Sweden and Denmark come in at third and fourth, so 79 and 8.2%. So of all the countries that I have full data for in that period between 1960 and 2015, those four countries had the lowest uh, uh, supply growth rate uh, per year on average. I'm sure there might be others that are similar or lower, but I think these are a good a good indication of the kind of best case scenario for the fiat standard. You know, it's not going to get better than what the Americans and the Swiss and the Swedes and the Danes have pulled off. You're not going to beat six, seven percent per year with fiat. That's what they've done. And and really, the Swiss kind of cheated in this by being on the gold standard for uh, the first decade or so of this data. So up until 1974 or so, the Swiss were still on a gold standard. So they were kind of cheating in this. But so six, seven percent is about as good as it's going to get. And not only is it, uh, which is significantly higher than gold, uh, but also it's highly unpredictable. So sometimes it can go up to 15% and sometimes it'll drop to 1% and sometimes it'll drop to even negative 5%. When you have a big deflationary recession, it can drop 5%, maybe even drop 10%. So you have this highly volatile process where uh, the money supply is increasing at unpredictable rates and increasing at a higher rate than gold, which I think in my mind is, uh, as, uh, as, as you would know if you've read the Bitcoin standard, in my mind is the driver of the um, increase in time preference because people now find it much harder uh, to save. And then, of course, there's the um, issue of deflation that comes in. So here I discussed deflation as well, which would be worth discussing at some point as well. And we've had several seminars on this. And then finally, I conclude this chapter with a discussion of um, price inflation. And this is basically me um, scribbling down what Michael Saylor had wrote. I think his analysis of inflation is really one of the best that you could uh, come across. And I think he, he really hit the nail straight on the head when he said that inflation is not a number. You can't measure inflation as a number like the CPI. You need to measure inflation as a vector. And inflation uh, inflation as a vector refers to um, inflation for each good. You can't just average the changes in prices for all goods. You need to look at individual goods. And once you start looking at it that way, you can see 
there are certain um, parameters across which these vectors vary that can help you see where the inflation shows up. And so things that are um, highly uh, demanded and scarce for which it's hard to increase the supply, those are the things where you see the highest inflation. So, um, you know, prime real estate, the, um, uh, highly skilled labor, top elite university uh, degrees, these things, you know, by definition, the fact is that people are looking for the best house or, you know, to live in the best city or the best part of the city. There's only going to be so many of these things produced. And so when, um, when there's inflation in the money supply, when there's an increase in the money supply, the prices of these things are going to reflect it. The luxury goods and the uh, goods that are hard to make and that are scarce, they're going to reflect this because the new money is going to compete for them. Where you don't see inflation is in digital goods because uh, digital goods are uh, digital goods are essentially uh, uh, you know they involve very little variable cost. And there's no scarcity in them. There's no limit and they don't scale. There's no energy expenditure that is needed in order to make more and more of them. So you see very low inflation or you see deflation there. And then things, you know, um, things that are not very scarce. So like unspecialized labor or basic real estate, these things will witness slower and slower um, inflation. So they'll be at around one or two or 3%. And that's really, I think, how we can think of inflation. And I think Sailor really hits the nail on the head with this one. He really um, ex explains it quite well. Um, and so the result of this is that in order to make the fiat standard work, we're constantly having everybody have a strong incentive to get into debt. Everybody is constantly trying to get into debt and the money supply is constantly being increased and prices are rising and people find it much harder to save for the future. And people are losing the economic progress that we were beginning to take for granted in the 19th century and the early 20th century. Well, not early 20th, but up until late in the 20th century, people just assumed that, you know, we'd always continue to progress economically. But it's becoming clear that, um, you know, with inflation, um, maybe we don't. In fact, maybe the quality of life regresses. Maybe we stop accumulating capital. People stop saving and things continue to um, deteriorate. Um, Victoria has a question. She's asking DKK, the Danish Corona is back to the Euro. How does uh, this influence the 8.2%? Uh, this isn't, when we say inflation rate here, we're not measuring uh, price inflation. We're measuring the increase in the local money supply. And so this would be the total amount of money that exists in Denmark. And uh, even if the Corona is pegged to the Euro, you know, you can still measure the uh, total supply of, corona, of uh, Danish kronos, krones. Um, so, yeah, that's how you can get the 8.2%. And, uh, you know, that money is also created through credit like everywhere else. I just would like to be clear. So all money that, whether it's quantitative easing or however it's created, it's all created through debt. Is that right? It's all always created that way? Basically, yeah. Even even physical money, um, you can think of uh, physical money as just being a, um, a a token of debt money that was created uh, on banks' balance sheets. In other words, um, banks create the money, and central banks create money, and they have their reserves, 
and then they print some physical notes for the reserves. So the majority of reserves are digital, but some of them are physical, and then they exchange some of those reserves with uh, physical notes. So the money really is debt, and um, the paper money is just printed uh, printed versions of that money, printed representation of the debt. You know, I just had this other thought about, you know, mentioned how about uh, when you touched on competition in Bitcoin mining, um, how that, uh, how competition is something that socialist theory, in socialist theory, we want to completely give it, do away with all competition, right? That through, basically through ownership. And just, that just popped into my mind. I, I don't know if that's something that's relevant to the, um, systems that we're talking about but um that does seem to be at odds that's part of what's at odd you know where bitcoin works with capitalism but it works against socialism is it is based on competition just a thought very much so yeah and this is this is really what uh, you know bitcoin is a very elaborate way to bring market competition into money it's a very elaborate way of going around this uh, monopoly uh, function of the central bank that I described in the triad standard. It's all monopoly. You know, it's a monopoly on banking, monopoly on international clearance, and a monopoly on issuing national currency, and effectively a, a market maker in, uh, in government bonds. And you can't opt out. You know, if you've got a... Uh, if you live anywhere in the world, there's a local... <laughs> fiat node that expects tribute <laughs> you know you have to pay your taxes in their local token very 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 few people all over the world have managed to escape this like uh, there's a, the sentinel island off the coast of india and there's some uncontacted tribes probably somewhere in the amazon those are the only people who have successfully managed to avoid the fiat malware so far everybody else has been uh, successfully um Put on the fiat blockchain, basically. <laughs> At least uh, those uh, tribes in the Amazon won't have scaling issues because they can jump straight to you know a cheap mobile phone, and they won't have to build all of these massive uh, buildings like central banks are useless to print anything. Yeah, they're going to you know imagine if you just enter a civilization in the twentieth twenty first century. I mean, you, you, you're going to skip a lot of bullshit from the 20th century. Like, in the same way that, you know, you skipped uh, not having a cell phone. I, I mean, you skipped landlines. Many people, many places in the world uh, leapfrogged landlines into uh, um, uh, cell phones. Imagine you just leapfrog central banks and go straight to Bitcoin, you know, straight from seashells to Bitcoin or from gold to Bitcoin. That would be nice. Uh, Victoria is asking, I remember you wrote in your book, we wouldn't be able to use Bitcoin as money, but the central banks could use it to do a daily settlement. So what kind of money would we use? I think I, I didn't write that we wouldn't use Bitcoin as money. I said we wouldn't use the Bitcoin's uh, blockchain, on-chain transactions for consumer payments. And, and, and the point that I tried to make in my book is that we need to distinguish conceptually between the uh, money itself and the payment network. In other words, if I, um, if I make a payment for you right now using PayPal, 
that's a payment that's being made with uh, the dollar. The money is the dollar. The payment network is PayPal. Now, Bitcoin on-chain transactions are effectively like PayPal running its own PayPal coin. It, it has its own native coin and it has its own native payment network. What I'm saying is that we won't be able to use the payment network itself for um, settlement payments. Sorry, for consumer payments. You can't use the payment network itself for consumer payments. It will never be able to scale to that level. But the money itself can be used for uh, consumer payments. In other words, in the same way that, you know, when you use uh, uh, Visa or MasterCard or PayPal to buy your lunch or your coffee, you're, you know, you're not moving base layer dollars. It's not like the base money in your bank is going to move to the base money in uh, the coffee shop's bank the moment that you um, give them your credit card or debit card or whatever. You're not moving base money. You're just moving uh, uh, credit claims between the banks and that will only settle by the end of the month or the week or whatever. Bitcoin is not different. It, uh, I think it's just the misconception that people had in the earlier years where they thought that Bitcoin was the payment network itself. They thought the Bitcoin was the PayPal. They thought the Bitcoin was the Visa. And um, when they start realizing that, all right, well, Bitcoin can't beat Visa, can't beat PayPal, it can't scale as much as PayPal and Visa, then they just assume that, you know, we can't uh, find a way around that. It's as if, you know, oh, we've built this thing that will compete with PayPal, but we've just realized that it can only do half a million transactions, whereas Visa does a couple of billion a day or whatever. Um, so my point is that it's not the payment network that uh, competes as money. The payment network, in my mind, competes with this fiat node uh, standard that I mentioned, wherein, you know, this is the only thing that is available for international settlement between financial institutions. The only thing that they can resort to is central banks. So the only things that PayPal and Visa and MasterCard can use for settlement amongst um, their clients and businesses is the central bank's network. And in my mind, the Bitcoin payment network replaces central banks settlement networks and the Bitcoin currency replaces central banks currency um, uh, in, 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 as a unit in people's uh, calculations. But the Bitcoin protocol itself and the Bitcoin network itself does not replace consumer payment rails. It cannot replace those things. We're going to be building things like that on top of Bitcoin and we're going to be, I'm sure, using a lot of the pre-existing uh, fiat uh, payment rails with Bitcoin, which is already starting. So now you already have um, Bitcoin creeping into uh, PayPal. And uh, we're going to see more on Cash App as well. And we're going to see more and more of these um, more and more of these um, systems start supporting uh Start supporting Bitcoin and Strike as well as a good example, and we can see, we can, see, and, and and I think you know it's it's um, it's a matter of time in my mind that uh, a Visa or Mastercard are going to start offering it. I mean, they already offer payment in dozens of uh, currencies around the world. Um, what's adding one more currency? They you know they've 
added all kinds of currencies over the last 50 years. And you can pay with all of these currencies and they have uh, cash balances in all of these currencies in order to facilitate payments. And they're just going to be adding one more. When you do that, you will be using Bitcoin for payment. You know, you can still use your, whatever it is that you use today, whether it's Venmo or uh, MasterCard or Visa or whatever it is, you can still use it with Bitcoin. And in the same way that when you use your MasterCard and Venmo and Visa, base money does not move and the base settlement layer is not invoked immediately but then you know the it, your transaction just goes into the it is just batched with all the daily settlement or weekly settlement that happens i think the same thing can uh, apply with bitcoin because um strikes a brilliant example of um of of, a, of of an application of of that they're they're actually sending they're using the lightning network to send payments across borders and essentially what's happening is a, a, a you know a, a buy you, you buy sats at one end transfer using sats and then sell your sats at the other end and um, you know that's literally the network you know the the, the actual you're not you're not paying for things with bitcoin you're used utilizing a free a network that already exists to basically sort of you know send your money over the over to the other side of the world and it, it's incredible i mean it, it opens up so many new possibilities because it's an instant transaction that doesn't cost any money pretty much or it costs us well it doesn't actually to the user it won't even cost anything to begin with so um, you can you can send money every five seconds if you want, or you can you know people can start getting paid by the hour in every hour, for example, and etc. You know, and it's it's quite phenomenal that um, to 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 imagine that when when you go from what we're used to. If, I mean, I do a lot of transfers of money between currencies, um, and in even in this day and age, sometimes we still have to go through some strange clearing banks and, and it has to do two hops to get to the other side of the world and it takes three days um and once you see that you know if you look at just google strike and watch a, a, a watch the application working and you realize that even paypal etc are now a little bit defunct because anyone who wants to can join that network paypal has its own network but you can't really you know Venmo can't send to Cash App, you know, but on, on Lightning or, you know, there, there's already a few. There's Bottle Pay, there's, um, there's um, Strike, you know, and they can all send to each other because essentially they're using the same network. It's just a little, you know, they're, they're, they're using the software on top of it. And um, I, you can't imagine that the market won't all rush in that direction because then, you know, it's, it's a much better way of doing it. It's the, you know, it's much more inclusive and anyone can do it. And once you can, once people start using it and realize that, um, it doesn't make sense to go behind the closed door of, of PayPal to, to make your transaction, you know. You know, um, I, I, I'll admit, I haven't looked into Strike um, ex, uh, extensively yet, but um, let, let me make the counterpoint uh, to this. And I'm, I'm curious if this makes sense to you guys, but I think the issue here is that, uh, Sure, you can send it with Lightning, but if people are looking to send fiat to one another, then you need a market maker on both ends that is willing to take the other side of the trade. So if I want to send um, 
say lightning uh, if i want to use strike to send money from say the us to china i need to you know there there needs to be place there needs to be somewhere where i can receive the money from you and uh, give you bitcoin send it to the other person and then send send the bitcoin to china and then there has to be somebody in china who buys the bitcoin and sells the fiat so um I guess the way to put it is this: if you know, if all of these people have all of these uh, fiat to Bitcoin exchanges uh, able to sort this out, then I can see how maybe this works. But it also, um, you know, I, I don't see how you know if you want to take your fiat, there needs to be somebody. If I'm going to, there needs to be somebody in China willing to take, say, a ten thousand dollars worth of. Uh, um, Chinese uh, yuans and take them out of their safe and or their bank account and give them to you. And they need to take lightning uh, Bitcoin payments instead. You know, they need to hold on to the Bitcoin instead. What do you um, think? Well, not quite. I don't think. I mean, it's a beta. I haven't used it myself. I've only seen it used and listened to sort of Jack talk about it. Mm -hmm. But as far as I can tell, that's all hard baked into Strike itself. Um, they have a relationship with, um, I think it's BitMEX or one of the exchanges or whatever. And um, they have giant channels on Lightning themselves, like private channels. So um, all that happens sort of like um, behind, you know, not behind. It, it happens automatically. However, you are dealing in stable coins as well, I think. I mean, I, I, I was listening to them talk about it the other day and, he was talking about, say, you're a, you're in Venezuela and you're receiving dollars down in Venezuela because you want to sort of hold dollars. Um, you're basically holding tethers or, or whatever stable coin it is. And it would be up to you if you actually wanted real dollars to go to a an ATM, for example, you know, a, a Bitcoin ATM and, and put your QR code into the ATM and it would spit you out some US dollars. Um, but but the, I think the the, the the you know like i say i without actually having with using it myself yet because we can't use it here in the uk i don't actually know but um certainly the purchase at so if i if i have say i like the cash app if i have some some pounds on my strike account um if i decide to send them to to the canadian dollar so that you get them strike instantly sells them on exchange um turns them into sats, fires them over the lightning network, and at the other end, sells them into Canadian dollars, and you get them, and it all happens in a millionth of a second. That, as far as I know, that's, that's the way it works. How it's held on your, um, on your app, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether you're actually sat on Canadian dollars or a stable coin of a Canadian dollar. I don't actually know. Um, I, you know, I don't know enough about it yet, but, but that's, but, the, um, tricky, that's the tricky part. So, I mean, it's, uh, the tricky part is that people need to, you know, people, people want, uh, money because they want to spend it. Okay. And, you know, the, usually they're going to be, if I'm receiving money from you because I'm running a business, um, you know, I need to go use it to pay my workers and pay my suppliers. And, um, you know, it needs to be. It needs to be liquidated into hard cash at some point. There comes a yeah, point. 
you can just put it in your account. I mean, you can switch between like with Cash App, you can Cash App is a routing account. Like you have you actually have yeah. a, a so the, the way that that happens is that Cash App has a big chunk of bitcoins and a big chunk of uh, dollars and they're constantly and they're happy to take the other side of the trade whatever you want to do. So you can always buy from them and you can always sell from them. They have that other side. But to me, what I fail to see is who's going to be on the other end of that. And we don't even have to go to, to complicated, but we're going in China. So someone in New York, someone in California, even in the same country, um, you know, I want to send it to you and you want to cash it out in physical cash. The bank has to sit on the uh, Bitcoins, effectively. The bank has to buy the Bitcoins from you if that's what they want to do. But I don't think you hold the bitcoins. You you hold the you hold the the fiat currency. They hold the the channel on Lightning. I mean, Lightning is just a stake of a bit. You know, I've got one here. You know, I'm yeah. staking bitcoins on the on the Lightning network, which allows me to sort of funnel. You know, to make payments across there. So, but I think at each end, I think it only exists as Sats for that very small amount of time that it's being trans transmitted. That's the impression I get anyway. Yeah, and I, I, my skepticism comes from, and I really like Jack, and I'm sure he's uh, thought about this, but my skepticism is the fact that if you're only, if, if there's a bank that is receiving the other end of the transaction and then allowing you to cash out in dollars, then you don't even need the Lightning Network. What you've just got is uh, an intermediary who can um, basically uh, credit and debit um, uh, people with which they have a relationship. So uh, you get it very cheap as as a, as an for my you know as a as a consumer you get it incredibly cheap though you do, other than the. You know, I, I don't know. Like I say, I don't know the workings of the actual app itself, whether I can spend from the app, uh, mm -hmm. whether it works like a bank account, because if it's like cash app, it will actually function as a bank account. So you could just make payments. You could go, you know, debit cards, blah, 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 whatever. Right. I don't know if anyone's using it yet. Are there anyone on the group used strike? No, not not used it, but have looked into it extensively. It's say if you're you're right that it it depends to a very well, basically a total extent for its functioning on the liquidity in the Bitcoin to fiat pools. But I think a good way to think about it is that provided that those are liquid enough that there's effectively no arbitrage triangles between the three involved. If if you, I mean, and you can just look and see because all this information is online in the first place. What Strike is doing is almost a kind of regulatory arbitrage because the the like use the US to China example, the US, sorry, the dollar to Bitcoin exchange is happening in the US. The Bitcoin to Yuan exchange is happening in China. And the international part is happening on Bitcoin. Hence it's not really happening in any kind of judicial sense at all. Um, and provided that, like I said at the beginning, if, if that arbitrage triangle isn't there, then everybody is satisfied that this can just be executed instantly. But it does need the liquidity. So your your kind of background concern there is right. Yeah, but I mean, if you, I think the the question is, if you do have the liquidity on both ends, then effectively you can just run a what is called a Hawala system, um, wherein you know these exchange shops will just essentially. Uh, coordinate with one another and clear each other's balances for one another without even needing to settle all that often with one another. So I'm not even sure 
Well, but I guess, yeah, the light could be. The the thing is that you need the banks to trust each other. And the whole point of this is that they possibly don't even know who each other are. You got some random bank in the US, some random bank in China. This is a fit. It's kind of like it's doing the same thing that Visa would be doing, but just instantly and for free. I see. I guess, yeah. So they handle the transaction. And then all they have to do is two domestic transactions rather than an international yeah. one. Yeah. Provided then, there is a sufficient liquidity pool in the, in the domestic yeah. Uh, currencies, yeah. I yes. think also then that that does away with um, the bureaucracy of exchanging currencies as well, of course, because you're just selling and buying Bitcoin. You're not doing anything else. It's purely like, yeah. which which is really useful because anyone, that means pretty much anyone could... <laughs> get in the game quite easily. That's why I see the network effect happening on on in that system because any a lot of people are going to look at that and think, well, yeah, that's pretty good. And we can all sort of, you know, you can start up your own version of that if you want uh, to a degree, obviously, because, you know, um, and it's more likely that, that, that people will move in that direction. But, hey, safe, you should get ask Jack to come on uh, and you can ask him directly. Yeah, that's a great idea. I should. I, I was planning on it. Um, I need to look into it more and uh, study it so I have uh, more intelligent things to say. Um, but I guess the other thing that I have to say is uh, there's also the regulatory risk, which is um, which is worth considering because um, if this thing works too well, then you know um, might be people that are not very happy about it working. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's it. Literally, does work too well. For, as far as I can see, it's a massive threat to even the well even the more progressive places like you know paypal and and transfer wise you know it's basically much better than that and cheaper for the consumer um so yeah i'm i'm pretty sure they'll use all their power to, to or or they'll jump on board who knows i mean they've already got the customers so maybe they will i don't know yeah. um it's 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 absolutely fascinating to, to when you when you look at what you know what it is it's just like it's like it's almost like a quite a pivotal moment in the network's you know ev- evolution i think but uh, we'll have to wait and see yeah chris is just uh sharing with us a link of an interview with uh, preston and jack Mahlers. um and i haven't seen that interview preston who was our guest on the last uh seminar um and this one uh yeah i, I haven't seen it yet but i'm i I uh, can already recommend it. I'm sure it would be very interesting. Preston and Jack. So Chris is saying that Preston and Jack are basically saying they will have no choice but to jump on board, referring to PayPal and Visa. And I think that is the end game. Um, I, I tend to agree. Um, whether it's through Strike or whether it's through something else, I think um, when I, in the Fiat Standard and in um in uh, some of the papers that I've written earlier, I've studied the Lightning Network scaling. And I think um, I think the issue with scaling the Lightning Network is not transaction per second capacity, because that's, that's, not, that's almost not a constraint. You, know, uh, you can just keep making more. The issue with the scaling Lightning Network is liquidity, is that you need liquidity in the uh, nodes. Lightning nodes need liquidity, so they are always able to um, route payments. And in my mind, that's um, 
I, I don't quite see the Lightning Network evolving because of that reason. I can't see it evolving as a purely peer-to-peer -peer, uh, network. So no matter how much the transaction per second capacity is, and no matter how cheap it is to run a, a Lightning node, it doesn't make sense for each individual to have their own Lightning node and to be connected to... Uh, to the network and to be routing payments because I think uh, routing payments is just going to be um, right. Routing payment requires liquidity. So you have to put up liquidity and uh, your own financial balances, uh, your own money is in your cash balance. It's there not because it, you wanted to earn money. So I think that function of providing liquidity for the clearance of payments on the Lightning Network that's going to be a business that's going to be specialized. There will be businesses that specialize in having large amounts of quant large amounts of liquid being put there so that it gets used uh, optimally and everybody connects to those businesses and to those nodes and uses them. In other words, um, the fact that... Uh, so one way to, to try and simplify that is the way that I think of it is this. Uh, the way that kind of fully peer-to-peer -peer model of Lightning works, effectively says, if you want to buy my car, we both have Lightning nodes. And then we, you know, we, we route that payment through different nodes where, uh, let's say that the, the uh, one Bitcoin goes from one node to another, and we're all going to be six degrees of separation from one another. So we'll find a route of um, six nodes and we make the hops. And, and then the, I get the Bitcoin from you and you, get the car the problem with this is that that requires all other four nodes or five nodes intermediary between us each one of them has to have one bitcoin lying around they need to have a car worth of coin in their node that's just there to route the payment and so that's you know money has value that's money that they can't spend that's money that they can't uh, invest that's money that they can't earn returns on so if you're just putting large amounts of money in a node and you're not doing it as a professional, that doesn't make sense. You know, you will only want to have as much cash balance as you need for your own needs. And so that doesn't really make sense in my mind as a, um, it's not like you're going to be putting uh, the price of a car just in case, you know, one day one of your friends wants to buy a car and then you can help them route. That's not a very useful use of uh, the price of a car it's something that will become specialized. So the provision of liquidity, in my mind, has to become or will become specialized just because, uh, you know, if you happen to have the price of a car lying around every day, that's not an efficient use. You're going to be outcompeted by people who are, um, you know, they have the prices of several cars, the value of several cars, and are routing many more payments and are able to do it much more economically. So all of this is a long way to say that, yeah, I agree. I think um, eventually... Um, this is what uh, Lightning is ideal for people like Visa and MasterCard. And, and this is what these uh, nodes will become, I think. And this is what a Lightning node will become. We'll have many, many, many more Lightning nodes than we have banks today. It'll be far more distributed. But I can't see us uh, developing to the point where each person has their own Lightning node, I think. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Uh, I well, <clears throat> I, I tend to agree with that last bit, but um, because um, I've watched my own node change, you know, its personality over the time. I I built a node sort of quite quite a while ago, 
And so far, it's something that you know you're playing a part in the network, but as far as it actually making any money for you, it's true that you're basically, you know, paying to to have your your Bitcoin on the node. What's interesting though is when I first, um, you know, spun up the node, I chucked a quarter of a Bitcoin on it, um, and now I'm getting with that same quarter of a Bitcoin, I'm getting a lot more payments ro- routed through because obviously a quarter of a Bitcoin is worth whatever ten thousand dollars now. So the, the 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 size of my liquidity pool in dollars is increasing. But I've always I've felt over the over the course of playing with it over the last sort of year that um, what also might happen is you may get someone like myself, for example, my node might service the local community around here or my network, whatever my network is, if it's a, because currently my network's an online network, but my liquidity may service my network there and that will help decentralize the whole thing. But I think a lot of people because I'm on a, a fair number of Telegram groups where people are discussing this a lot. And it's true that there are a lot of people now trying to see how they'll make money out of having their Bitcoin on a Lightning Network, whether it's renting out your channels for liquidity or whatever. And the the fee model is is changing, you know, and, and it's what and that everyone's tinkering around with the fee model now to see what they can do, what they can achieve, what, what, what will be. But for sure... There's going to be a lot of companies using it with very large pipes of liquidity and just it's a great instantly send large sums of money, you know, especially between exchanges. I've noticed if you're into arbitrage between exchanges, it's a phenomenal tool because you can you can literally, you know, it'll 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 spin up a whole new paradigm in the movement of, of liquidity around the around you know the whole network but yeah that that's been my experience just playing around with my own one is that one day maybe I, i'm still going to continue hosting the node but it's not making it it's not it, it may one day make a living but m- maybe if bitcoin's worth millions of dollars then then the, the kind of returns you could see from the current model would add up to uh, you know an amount but um yeah that's my experience anyway yeah i think uh, maybe you know there'll be one node for each extended family i think that's uh that probably makes sense so like within circles of um, you know they say the dunbar number is 150 people like you know every 150 people having their own node and then each one of these connected to a local uh um it'll be in my mind it'll be hop and spoke model so each um each uh, no each extended family of 150 people have their own node and then they're connected to a central uh well not central but they're connected to a node that's regional or with other families or with the town and then you have the mega nodes that are run by things like visa and mastercard hmm. maybe that's how it transpires well, the problem certainly the problem i'm noticing on my small scale version is um, that it's a very difficult network to stay balanced in um, because every time something's running through you, you kind of really want something equal and opposite to come back the other way in order to maintain your liquidity. And I, what I would love, and someone, I'm no, no doubt there are some great minds working on this, but you want something that 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 orchestrates that 
naturally and, and a bit of software running in the background. And there are, of course, there are small things you can do. You can run things on, you know, automatically balancing channels. But, but really at the moment, it, it's all, it feels like, you know, it's coming to a, uh, it's moving in the direction of an equilibrium where everything seems to be working, if you see what I mean. Um, otherwise, you, it's very easy to get out of sync on the Lightning Network and find suddenly all your liquidity is, is, is with the other person or with yourself. And, um, but, but then you can start adjusting your fees to sort of like limit the amount of flow you've got going through you. But the whole thing is a super complicated network at the moment if you're an individual. But, but that's, that's exactly what banking is. Uh, so, I mean, I, th I think fiat has given people this idea that banking is this miracle uh, where we move money from one place to the other. But really, it's about managing liquidity. Like, you know, banks don't do, they're, they're not sending money. Um, they're, they're managing their liquidity and it's about being able to, decide where to put your liquidity so i think that's really why it's going to become professional in my mind why you know running lightning nodes is going to be a highly competitive professional industry where um you know being able to optimize the location of your coins between the different nodes is going to be in an, a, an enormous economic edge these the, you know people who know how to do this will be able to charge very low fees versus people who uh, don't do this. They'll have uh, effectively outages, not because the network can't handle capacity, but because the liquidity is on the wrong side uh, of the transaction. Currently, then, do you do you envisage if you if you were to go into the future now from this point, do you envisage um, tokens out in the real world still getting settled in Bitcoin? As, as the reserve, but which tokens? Or do you, you don't see the lightning as, you know, a, a, a sats moving around. You see in a, some form of token moving around and then settling in Bitcoin. No. For like small pay, for the small payments, for, you know, for buying a coffee or something. On lightning, you mean? Yeah, I, I think. No, I mean no, 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 no. If, if you don't think lightning. Oh, sorry. So, sorry, sorry. You, 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 you believe in lightning as a payment rail, but just not, everyone having their own node exactly yeah, yeah. right, no, right. That, sorry, that, sorry. That, yeah i just don't think that uh managing balances is something that people uh uh will do uh, individually i think it's a professional thing that will be done by um com companies that develop highly sophisticated algorithms for managing it and it's uh, yeah. it's going to be it, it's um that's how the network works. But, you know, it's um, I think it's a little bit like the, the kind of uh, come down that some people had with Bitcoin when they realized that, oh, wait, actually, um, you know, you can't pay for your coffee on chain. And similarly, maybe, you know, you, we need to come to terms with the fact that you can't pay for your coffee with your own uh, lightning node. I think that's really, you know, you, you can't you, you won't be able to ha run a node that connects to. Uh, one of your friends to one of his friends, one of his friends and one of his friends, and then goes to the coffee shop. I can't really see that happening. I think you and the coffee shop will be connected to uh, a local node and uh, they will be managing the liquidity and your consumer experience. The, the notion that we're going to get people to do anything more complicated than what their uh, credit cards and Apple Pay does in order for us to function, I, th I think it makes no sense. And, it, it, you know, people have this thing where you just tap the credit card and the coffee is yours. 
you don't have to manage your liquidity and balances. You just need to make sure that you're making your payments on the credit card on time. And I think that's, that's, that's going to be the consumer experience that people will want in Lightning. And of course, just like with Bitcoin, you know, going to the point, just because you're not buying your coffee on Bitcoin does not mean that Bitcoin's security has been destroyed. There's a huge gray area between um, Bitcoin being secure enough to continue to operate and Bitcoin being secure enough to continue to operate and you getting to pay for your coffee on chain. And I think the same thing applies for the Lightning Network. So the fact that not everybody will be running their own um, um, node and managing uh, channels and managing the balance in the channel, it does not mean uh, that the Lightning Network fails. Um, it's just, uh, it's, uh, and, and you know, the, the, the decentralization Again, it's it's uh, Bitcoin is moving us, and the Lightning Network are moving us far, 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 far away from how much centralized the uh, current banking system is. So, just because we haven't, um, you know, just because we don't get to the full level of centralized decentralization where each coffee transaction on Earth is uh, fully trustless and recorded on a blockchain doesn't mean that you know we can't put central banks out of business and replace their settlement network which is not a bad conservation prize i'm sure everybody would agree <laughs> you know you can just quit your coffee and focus on central banks this is how i did it and i highly recommend everybody else follow this path all right any other questions or anything else you guys want to discuss all right well Thank you very much for joining then. And um, I will be uh, seeing you next week for the next seminar. Take care.